In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville. I'm Al Hunt. We're proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington. We hope someday to be back in their studios. Thanks for spreading the word about the show. We're glad that you like it. We hope that you'll subscribe and hit your subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Good show today, James. Matter of fact, really good show today. Andrew Basevich, a West Point graduate, retired Army colonel who served in Vietnam and the Persian Gulf, and a national security expert of great renown. Professor Emeritus at Boston University, president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His son, Andrew, was killed in the Iraq War. Andrew, James and I are both big fans, uh, and we thank you for joining us. I'm sure it must have been personally painful as well as professionally repugnant to read about the president calling slain American soldiers losers. Well, in a way, it wasn't. Uh, And it wasn't in the sense that uh, I have come to take nothing that the president uh, says uh, seriously. Uh, You know, why why be offended with someone who is so manifestly lacking in empathy, uh, decency? Uh, So I I, I tend to sort of discount those kind of uh, uh, remarks, however outrageous they may be. That's a that's that's good advice. You know, one night I, I, I said uh, in front of my family that Trump sometimes acts more like more like an animal. And my daughter, uh, you know, was furious. She said that's an insult to animals. But he doesn't show. He, he seems I think you called him a moral cripple. He is incapable in this or other matters of showing any uh, personal or social empathy. You know, we, we have to be careful. We don't stray into territory where we're trying to, uh, you know, be by uh, psychiatrists or something. But I'll stray anyway. <laughs> he really does seem to be a deeply damaged uh, a human being. You know, uh, from what we now know about his upbringing and his relationship with his father, and I guess the, the father's personality and absence of, of character, uh, it does appear that the president's, uh, you know, twisted personality and absence of character has has deep roots. Yeah, it sure does. On this story, I, I I worked next to Jeffrey Goldberg for two years. I didn't always agree with him on policy, but I respect him as a reporter. He would not write that story unless it was foolproof. He would not have written that story unless he had firsthand multiple reliable sources. So it's clear that the story, and also it's in keeping with things that Trump uh, had said earlier. 
And it does give lie to Trump's claim that he's the best friend the troops ever had. Well, you're right. I mean, I, I don't know uh, Goldberg at all. The Atlantic certainly is a reputable uh, magazine. But I think you made the key point is that in a way we shouldn't be surprised by what the president said, because if we recall his uh, contempt for Senator John McCain, his disrespect uh, for the, the Gold Star family uh, back during the, the 2016 campaign, this these new remarks are really all of a part. This is this is this is this is the guy. This is this is the real uh, Donald Trump. So uh, if I'm right, I hope I am that he's not going to be around after January the 21st or the 20th of next year. And but so assume they call you and said, President-elect wants to spend 15 minutes with you and you walk in and what advice would you give him? And I, I, and I think I'm correct in this because I became my class at Tulane. We talked about this. He wrote a book on the limits of power. What would you advise him strategically going forward about how to use American power? And I, I want to specifically go vis-a-vis China because I think we all agree that China is an adversary. And how would you advise him to deal with this issue? And, and what's your overall view? strategically where the United States needs to go. Yeah, I think the first thing I would say to him is that uh, Mr. President-elect, you are going to face very, very uh, powerful pressure to revert to what, to revert to the pre-Trump model of so-called American global leadership. You're going, to be, you're going to be pressured to revert to uh, the not simply the policies of the Obama and Clinton administration, but also of the George W. Bush administration. And what I mean by that, the definition of American global leadership, which, which puts great emphasis on accumulating, being prepared to use, and then using American military power. And I'd say, Mr. President-elect, before you give into that pressure, take time to undertake a realistic evaluation of what adherence to that paradigm has produced. Have, have as a consequence of our emphasis on having and using military power, dating back to the, end of, to, to, to the fall of the Berlin Wall, is our country becoming safer? Is our country becoming more prosperous, more equal? Is the world becoming a more stable place? Because I personally think the answer is no to all those. And therefore, instead of you know reverting to the standard US approach to national security policy, I think he needs to stop, take a deep breath, and consider what the alternatives are. Give us an example of an alternative. I think an alternative is to, while acknowledging that there will never come an end to geopolitics, to the competition between nation states for power, the jockeying for interest. That, that's a, that is a permanent part of, of our existence on this planet. That said, I think there's an argument to be made, and it's an argument I share, that we are now moving into an age, we may be already in an age, when a new set of problems should take priority over those old notions of geopolitical struggle. And you know what I'm referring to. 
I'm referring to climate change. I'm referring to global diseases. I'm referring to the deterioration of the global commons. I'm, re I'm referring to these wildfires that we read about out west or see uh, on the nightly news day after day, year after year. So I think there's a, there is a, there has emerged a new national security agenda that actually should take precedence over the question of our rivalry with China that you alluded to. And indeed would argue that for the well-being of ourselves and the well-being of the planet, we need to bring the Chinese around to sharing our understanding, the understanding that I just tried to outline of the most pressing security challenges that we face. And what I just said, like in a, in a, in a too long sentence, uh, makes it sound like it'd be easy. I think it's going to be monumentally hard. But I think that if, if we give in to the notion that a, a new Cold War with China is more or less inevitable, then we'll never get to that larger agenda of, of security issues that I think are really more important. I, I very much agree that it, you know, we have to figure out a way to, that people have to figure out a way to live with water because more water is coming our way. And uh, that's inevitable no matter what we do. That's a good, succinct way to put it. More yeah. water is coming our way. It's just coming. It, 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 it just is not going to stop anytime soon. And there's a lot of people that live in, in deltas and a lot of people that are being affected by you know the, the combination whammo of sea level rise and subsidence it's a you I, I completely agree and i you know i you I, i'm sure you know biden i don't know biden i've never met biden not, not well uh, no, I, I, I i don't i don't I, I think apart from having met uh, michelle flournoy a couple of times i'm not sure i know any of those people who are sort of his are or are likely to be his principal national security advisors. That said, from what I know and from what I read, it sounds like they are a very conventional sort. You, you, I know some of the people around him, and I, I tend to agree with, with their assessment that they, they're pretty conventional in the kind of Clinton-Obama mode and not overly rethinking things. But you know them better, Al. Why don't you weigh in on it? No, I agree totally. Look, I think most of the people, we, you know, we always engage in this conjecture now, who's going to be in a cabinet, but the most probable types and the people who are oft mentioned are people who were high-level officials in the Obama administration, Andrew, Susan Rice, and Michelle Flournoy, and Tom, and Tom Donlan. And, you know, every, in this century, every single new president comes in basically suggesting they're going to pay more attention to soft power than hard power. They're going to end endless wars. And it usually takes, uh, you know, a matter of months uh, for them to change. And my, I guess my question is, do you, you mentioned earlier, you know, Michelle Flournoy. Is there any reason for you to be more optimistic that Biden could be different? Well, again, you know, I'm, I really don't want to give the impression that I have a sort of a, much of a feel for these people. But, you know, I, I, you, you can go to their campaign websites and you'll find promises to fix everything. But I thought Biden's uh, speech when he accepted the nomination was certainly telling. Where he basically, not basically, he did explicitly, said that his purpose was to save the soul of America. Now, I, I think the soul of America is in great jeopardy. <laughs> so, so we need some saving. Uh, but 
I also believe that if we are to undertake the sort of comprehensive domestic renewal that that speech suggested, then we're going to have to radically rethink our role in the world to, to break away from the paradigm of mil militarized uh, leadership. On that point, just a little while ago, this morning, I was reading this interesting essay that Michelle Floor and I uh, published in Foreign Affairs, I think in June, where she lays out her views on what she calls deterrence in East Asia, deterring the Chinese. But between the lines, deterrence is dominance. I mean, the, the, she won't say this, but deterrence means we will acquire so much military power and have it available that those, those guys won't think of doing anything that's going to, uh, you know, uh, be contrary to our interests. And that is indeed a recipe for, uh, for a Cold War, for a, for a further arms buildup, an arms competition. <laughs> of course, the difference is this would be a Cold War that we'd be happening uh, with our antagonist also being our, what, number one or number two trading partner in the world and a holder of, of trillions of dollars of American debt. So, you know, how, how all that plays out to our advantage, I don't know. But my point is, and, and she is, you know, I think, widely seen as the, as the likely uh, uh, Pentagon chief for Biden. It's, it's old think. It's not new think. Uh, and it's old think that I don't know how Biden would be able to mesh with his agenda of saving America's soul. Now, maybe, maybe James Carville would tell me, well, don't take that kind of rhetoric seriously. That's just what they say when they're accepting a nomination. But I, no, I guess I, I... I would not tell you that. Who are some people, uh, who are some people that you find particularly provocative and insightful on this question about the future use of military power, diplomacy, foreign affairs, et cetera. Are there any people that you like really respect out there? Well, you know, I'm involved in this uh, Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which is a new uh, startup think tank in Washington that uh, we exist to promote a foreign policy of restraint, you know, uh, less reliance on military power, greater reliance on creative diplomacy. And I'm, I'm, sort, of, I'm sort of the figurehead. I'm like the Queen Elizabeth. You know, I'm, I, I sort of preside, but I don't really do anything. But we got some young people that I think are extraordinarily thoughtful and talented and, and push back against the reigning paradigm. We've got a young guy named uh, Stephen Wertheim, for example, who's got a book coming out from uh, Harvard University Press uh, next month. Uh, he and others, I mean, I will give you a laundry list of names. I, I do believe that there is a, a generation of younger thinkers on security matters who who have, have lost patience with the, the paradigm that, to put it bluntly, you know, got us uh, into Iraq and, you know, permanently lodged in Afghanistan. Uh, so I do think there's people out there, but, but they're, not, they're not sort of on the short list of, of who's going to be uh, a top official. I mean, one of you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, Susan Rice. I, I imagine Susan Rice is going to be on, you know, 
going to be Secretary of State, something like that. Uh, she's a hawk. Uh, you know, I, I just as I just as I'm very reluctant to vote for Biden because he voted for the uh, uh, Iraq War. Not that I will vote for uh, Trump, but you know, Rice Rice was one of the drivers for the Libyan intervention of what was that 2011? It's a disaster. Uh, and yet it was supposedly undertaken because that was going to be an opportunity to demonstrate uh, American leadership. All we did was to to do great evil. Uh, so I, I just wish that there was a different set of names that were being bandied about uh, as people that Biden was likely to consider for a, for senior posts. I would uh, no, I would you know, I, you make a very telling point, uh, you know, looking over the last actually 60 years, because I would consider Vietnam, you know, ill-fated disaster too. But the only foreign policy adventure that seemed to, I, I think you could argue, was at least a short-term success was, you know, Bush 43's first Gulf War in the sense that he had a limited objective. Uh, he had a, a, a global alliance. There was a cause for it. Saddam had gone into another country. Uh, one can argue how big a cause that was, but all those factors haven't been present in anything else we've done, Andrew. Well, so let's talk Bush 41. No question. And he's, he's the last president we've had who, from a foreign policy, national security perspective, was actually prepared to assume office. Uh, you know, the other people, uh, you know, Bill Clinton, uh, George W., uh, Barack Obama, Basically, it was on-the-job training in many respects. And I think Bush had two profound successes, and yet they're successes with an asterisk, and the asterisk deserves our attention. Success number one was bringing the Cold War to an end the way he did. Uh, I mean, it, I think the Cold War ended because Mikhail uh, Gorbachev uh, came to understand that continuing the competition with the with the, the West and the United States simply was not going to pan out to the benefit of the Soviet Union. So he embarked upon this bold uh, program of reform, which didn't work. Uh, but nonetheless, his he was he was the initi initiator. But but where where George H. W. Bush comes in was when Gorbachev decides to call it off. It, it's Bush then who is able to negotiate uh, keeping a united Germany part of the West in NATO, uh, I think was an, a, 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 a triumph that we probably will never appreciate because we take it for granted uh, that Germany is a peaceful country. Uh, well, it ain't always been. <laughs> So that, I think that was a great, but, but then you say, well, then, then well, what happened to that triumph? Well, what happened to that triumph is that Bush himself and then his successors, starting with Clinton, uh, you know, succumbed to victory disease and decided that uh, they'd incorporate Eastern Europe into NATO, uh, which meant that, that post-Cold War NATO was inevitably going to be perceived by the Russians as a security threat. I'm not, and I would not argue that, you know, we should have said the hell with the Lithuanians and the Poles, but I do think we need to appreciate that that, that inclination to incorporate all of Europe into the West 
had a downside. And we're still dealing with that downside today in this rivalry uh, with the Russians, you know, that's focused on uh, 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 Ukraine or on the Caucasus or whatever. I don't want to get into here, but I think, honestly, the Bosnian interventions was a pretty intelligent application of American power. Fair enough. Fair enough. But 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 I also would say that from a from a from a grand strategic from a grand strategic point of view, that was not exactly a central episode. But right, it was. But the but point is well made. It did, if you if you were subject to a genocide, you were pretty happy about it. <laughs> I, agree with, I, I think that the uh, you know starting with the with Baker. You know, we had made some pledges that I understand it to the Russians that we wouldn't expand. Correct. And it certainly Putin brings it up in every discussion that he has. Yes. And I think it's a very valid observation to make that we we probably, you know, could have could have done a little yeah, we, we, we overplayed our hand a little bit. Andrew, we don't want to take much more of your time. What was the second success with the caveat that you were alluding to a minute ago for Bush? Well, the second one is, is, uh, is the Gulf War of 1991. I mean, strong argument to be made that uh, Saddam's invasion of, uh, of, of Kuwait, totally unacceptable, required a response. We led the response, uh, impressive putting together the coalition, largely impressive uh, 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 campaign. And then the big but is because Saddam managed to survive, that administration uh, made the decision affirmed by his successors to begin maintaining large numbers of U.S. forces in the per Persian Gulf permanently, which we had never done before. Uh, and, and that ended up eliciting a hostile response from people like Osama bin Laden and others. And then lo and behold, here we are, whatever it is now, 30 years later, and we're still militarily engaged there, even though we can't figure out what exactly we're fighting for now. So I want to make, want to make one point here. General Mattis and General Kelly say that, they, you know, they shouldn't, they won't come forward. And it's a honorable tradition. Two of my favorite general officers ever were General David Shoup of the Marine Corps and General Ridgway of the United States Army. And they didn't mind telling Lyndon Johnson that Vietnam was freaking disaster. All right. And that, that, that's not a hidebound tradition of the military. That well, well, wait, wait, wait. Number one, uh, and correct me if I, my facts are wrong here. Shoup was on active duty as the commandant. He was, and I think he, he and he was a Pelham Marine, by the way. Record, like I understand that. Yeah, and, and I believe I'm correct in saying that he expressed his dissent in private to the president, Mr. President. This is stupid. We shouldn't do it. That is entirely appropriate. Ridgeway was retired by the time we get to Vietnam, uh, and again, that, that puts him in a somewhat different category. Uh, I, I think. I mean, if, if you're opening a, a, a new subject called civil military relations. And I think that the place to begin discussing that subject, to my mind, is always the imperative of honoring the, the principle of civilian control. So we don't want open arguments between active duty military leadership and the commander in chief. We should want candid honesty between, uh, from, from our military leaders to the president on matters of basic policy, but it needs to stay in the Oval Office. It needs to stay, you know, between the principles and not become part of a larger of our larger politics. At least that's my view. 
But Andrew, that doesn't apply to retired officers, General Ridgway, General Gavin during the Vietnam War. That wouldn't apply to General Mattis or General Kelly today, would it? Doesn't apply to you. Well, well, I don't. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a professor. That's all I am. But, but no. But you're raising you're raising a very important point. And, and I think the question there is, is, is a retired four-star general really a retired guy? Or, or is, is that person still implicitly walking around wearing four stars on their shoulders and therefore is seen as speaking on behalf of the military? I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's complicated. There's no easy thing here. It, I, I'm not suggesting for a second that a retired four-star is supposed to you know, sort of button his lip uh, and disengage from from public affairs. That would be that would not serve the country well. But uh, if 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 we have if we have sort of you know huge arguments, public arguments between the retired four stars and the serving commander in chief, that that will I think bleed into public disputes between the military and the commander in chief and therefore potentially undermine the principle of civilian control. That's where I always go back to. We got, if, we don't, if we don't have civilian control, then the Constitution's in, uh, in jeopardy. And that's, that's always my concern. General Mattis was a, was a four-star general. I was an E-4. We both hold the same rank today, civilian. All right? That's it. Eisenhower, at times, refused to salute back because he said, I'm not in the Army anymore. And... I, I just we have a quibble here, but when no, I think I think it's a pretty big disagreement, actually, James. Okay, I mean I, I, I understand that he is no longer on active duty, right? But but when he speaks, you know, to the press, right? He speaks as a four-star general. That's where his authority comes from, uh, and and he earned it. I mean, God knows he earned it. I don't have any doubt about that. I, we just we have a we have a disagreement. It's <laughs> well, well, let me let me let me just take it one. We just ask you to make sure that 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 I understand what you're saying. If if General Mattis and General McMaster and General Kelly and Secretary uh, Tillerson were to say before this election that we served in this administration, this was our role, not as a four-star general or a three-star general or Exxon chairman, our role in this administration, and it is our considered view that Donald uh, Trump is uh, uh, is a a threat, not capable of conducting uh, the national security interests of the United States. Would that be beyond the pale? Well, what 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 good do you think that would do? In other words, there are lots of people who say loud and clear, Trump is incompetent, and Trump is dishonest. Now, Trump should not retain this office. What, what, what is the benefit of Madison, McMaster, and whoever else uh, joining that course? So I, I guess the benefit is it's just the truth. All right? And sometimes there's, there's benefit to the truth. That would be my well, argument. I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> probably confuse, confusing myself here. I don't want to restrict anybody's freedom of speech. Uh, I'm just not sure whether they would add anything in particular to the, you know, the pub- public debate. But to actually to answer directly the question, I'd be okay with that. You know, with the, with the McMaster Mattis, uh, you know, uh, statement, if they prefaced it by some kind of a, of a clear, 
appreciation of civilian control. You know, we, we recognize the importance of civilian control, and yet we also are about to say these things about why this guy shouldn't be reelected. To make just just make sure there's no blurring of that uh, that principle. Well, it's a fascinating uh, topic, and it's always fascinating talking to you, uh, Andrew. And I hope the Biden people listen to some of the people that you have suggested. And I hope we can stay in touch with you. I, I really, I really, I'm a huge admirer of yours. And one of the things that you do before we leave, I have to say this: I, I you know, when they roll out a you know, some quadruple amputee and wheelchair and put them on a pitcher's mound in Fenway Park and, you know, fly over some F-18s and everybody claps and goes back to the ball game. I, I just find that. And I always was uncomfortable with that. And I read your readings. It's, it's actually repugnant. You know, it, it really is. And, and I, I don't know how you stop it. It's just something that it just irritates the hell out of me every time I see it. James, it goes back to the creation of the all-volunteer force, you know, where where the American people root for the troops, but don't have any skin in the game. Right. But I mean, all, we all root for the troops. And all, that's great. Thank you for your service. I buy guys in uniform, beers and airports and shit like that. But, you know, <laughs> I just want to say you really opened my eyes to that in, in ways that it wouldn't. I, I, I did. I did start with some discomfort, and you know, it started with the Iraq War when after post nine eleven. If you didn't stand up and if you didn't put your hand on your heart, you know, if you fidgeted around during the anthem, you know, people would criticize you. I, you know, I, I just, I just don't find that. I find that I found it unattractive then, and when I read you, I found it in. More than unattractive, I found it talking, but I just wanted to make that point of why, why I had you on the show. I'm a huge admirer of yours, and I really am, and I, I hope we can get you back on. Thank you very much. Well, that makes that makes two of us, Andrew, and I can't thank you enough for being with us. Uh, I agree with you both on that. 60 seconds of standing, cheering, and then going and forgetting about it uh, while there's a ball game or something else, but uh, it's the way it is. Hey, thank you. Be safe up there in Walpole. Uh, and I hope we can have you on again. Yes. Uh, and if this ever, ever gets cleared up to see you in Washington. I'd enjoy that very much. Bye, y'all. Michael McDonald, a full professor at the University of Florida in political science and a Brookings fellow, is the foremost expert on voter turnout in American elections. He runs the U.S. Elections Project and his special expertise in redistricting and other electoral issues. Michael, first of all, down in Florida, thanks for joining us. And when we spoke to you last, it was at the turn of the year, before we knew about the pandemic. That seems like a century ago. You were forecasting a massive turnout this November. What's your estimate today? Yeah, we can actually see that, if anything, interest has ticked up even more uh, after the pandemic. Uh, looking at the primary turnout rates uh, that were um, going on before the, the pandemic hit, they were running oh, uh, about on par with uh, uh, 20, uh, 2016 and maybe a little bit above, not quite 2008 on the Democratic side. And on the Republican side, there was actually a lot of interest for a contest that was um, largely uncontested. Rates were well above the 2004 numbers for um, Bush. 
Uh, and then the pandemic hit. And initially, there was this shock to the system where um, the, uh, uh, the turnout rates went down, the states were struggling to run the elections. And then um, the states got more or less, although there's still problems, they got their act together. And um, after the uh, initial hit on the system, turnout rates actually are now above the levels that they were prior to when the pandemic hit. And we've seen unprecedented un, uh, record turnouts in some of the states that have uh, held their elections, uh, with, say, within the last two months or so. So it looks as though that, if anything, turnout rates have actually increased be, uh, after we got past that initial shock. And Michael, on both sides, and a divide between in-person and mail voting intentions? Um, well, yeah, this is going to be a very unusual election, um, you know, for a number of reasons. But one of them is that we've already seen unprecedented numbers of people who are voting by mail. Um, we've seen uh, numbers of people voting in a primary election, which is you know much lower turnout than a general election. Um, superseding the 2016 uh, mail balloting uh, by you know, orders of magnitude in some states. So this is not, it's not even close. It's, these are record numbers, they're off the charts. Uh, and it's primarily coming from Democrats, uh, registered Democrats in states where we can see the party registration of the people who are uh, voting by mail. Um, Republicans, um, they're about at the same level, so they're, it's not like they've dropped off the um, face of the earth. Some of them are voting by mail, too, uh, but it's really, really unprecedented increases in mail balloting for Democrats. And as a consequence, when you look at a state like North Carolina or Florida, we're seeing these huge lopsided numbers in ballot requests now that are showing up for the general election. In fact, they're actually voting in North Carolina right now. Um, as of this morning, there were over 1,300 people who had cast ballots in North Carolina. And again, we're seeing these really lopsided numbers in favor of registered Democrats. I would caution everybody, it's, this is all uncharted territory. And um, we're going to see a lot of Republicans voting in person on Election Day. So it's going to be uh, a tug and pull. Yeah, I, I saw your numbers and they are stunning, not just in places like Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Maine. I mean, just huge Democratic advantages. But I think Republicans would say, hey, our people survey show are going to vote more in person. So therefore, that may be deceptively encouraging for Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. We could actually see it in the August primaries in Florida, where, again, we had these really huge numbers of, of Democrats voting by mail. And usually in Florida, the Democrats vote in person early. That's their best method of voting in Florida. And Republicans actually had more people voting in person uh, early in Florida. So um, than the Democrats did. That's unprecedented as well. So even among the in-person early voters, we're seeing this big shift to, um, of Democrats voting by mail, and now they're not voting in-person early, and Democrats are, are even winning that in-person early vote in Florida. So things are really different. What I would say here is, so as we move forward, we're going to see these really um, jaw-dropping numbers for the Democrats in the early voting numbers, and especially with the mail ballots. But where we should look 
is the states that haven't changed their method of voting to get a sense of the lay of the land on the election. That'll be the um, all-mail ballot states of Colorado and Oregon and Washington. Um, and uh, we'll get good data from Colorado and Oregon, and it should give us a sense of the overall turnout, and we should be able to get a sense of the relative enthusiasm of registered Democrats and Republicans, because both Oregon and Washington and Colorado are party registration states. Well, Professor, there's a, uh, there's a bet in sports called over-under. So LSU plays Florida, and <laughs> the over-under is 52. If the total number of points scored is under 52, the under wins. If it's over 52, the over wins. If you, and the idea that the odds maker wants is to draw, make it as difficult as possible and draw an equal amount of money on both sides. If you were setting the over under for the total number of people at vote, what would it be that you would say, I don't know if it, this, this is the way it is and we'll draw equal interest on both sides. What would you put the total at? Well, it's funny that you even say that because recently a, um, a betting organization asked me um, to do this for them, <laughs> so <laughs> um, I, to come up with some numbers. We want to split. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't just an uh, academic exercise. And I don't do the betting markets. I feel like it would be a huge professional conflict of interest, so I, I, I don't engage in them. Um, but... I. Here's what I look, um, maybe 150 million people voting nationally, um, and half of those are, will be people voting by mail, um, which again, these are both unprecedented numbers in modern elections. That would be the highest turnout rate since 1908 uh, for um, eligible voters if we look at the overall turnout rate. And of course, we've never had 75 million people vote by mail in this country. So those are both unprecedented numbers. But there's a lot of uncertainty here. Um, and uh, once we get closer into the election, uh, we'll get a better sense on, on these raw estimates I'm giving you. Um, so I, if right now, if I went with 150, I probably would shade it on the under on that um, because I think it's probably more like 148 million. I'm trying to give a round number that really give the sense of like, this is an estimate, not a, a, a really good, hard and fast number. Right. And, and, and as the season progresses and Dallas's offense is better than people think or Florida's defense is, you know, but, but it, it'll adjust. But right now, you'd set it somewhere around 150 million. It's your best guess. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's an interesting aside on all this. There's a really important reason why we're going to come up with e turnout n numbers for each state in advance of the election. Because I also um, work with uh, Edison Media Research, which runs the national exit poll. And uh, this year, uh, we are going to, instead of report percent precincts, um, that are outstanding. We're going to report the percent uh, outstanding vote that uh, we think has yet to be cast. And so we're going to come up with these initial estimates of what we think the vote will be. And uh, then on election night, as the numbers start coming in, we'll be looking at those very carefully and making adjustments. If we get a county that's 100% reported and we know that there are very few mail ballots or provisional ballots that might be outstanding in that county, we can start tweaking our um, uh, turnout estimates both within that state and uh, nationally as well as we start getting uh, information from other states. And so hopefully, you know, we'll see by the end of the evening uh, on election night, we'll have a much better estimate of what we think the overall turnout rate will be. And that will be reflected in that outstanding vote to be counted. Um, and that will be really important too, because there are gonna be some states that are gonna be slow on their reporting. 
And we need to have an estimate there so that people are aware that there's a lot of vote left to be uh, uh, counted yet. Um, in other states, though, it's going to be pretty quick. So, um, but we need to get that right. You, you all happen to be strategically located in the state that is undoubtedly the king of swing, all right? How will we know? How soon will we know a good idea of the results in Florida? Will we know that election night? All right, let me give, uh, you know, just to give a baseline for the primary election that we just held in August, um, over 99% of our votes were counted uh, on election night. Um, we're a fast reporting state in Florida. Now, there are some military and overseas civilian votes that are counted and accepted late, and there are provisional ballots that are counted late, um, but the overwhelming majority of the votes are counted on election night. So um, unless it's really close, unless we're 2000 Florida recount doomsday scenario, we should know on election night uh, who won Florida. If there's one county in Florida, if you could see the result, you feel like you could accurately predict the whole state. And I'm, I'm asking people around the country this. If you just could look at one whole card, what county would you look at that would give us a an idea where it's, where it's going to go. Oh, God. I, you know, I knew the state too well <laughs> to give that answer um, because it's going to matter. Like uh, our um, uh, uh, African-Americans turning out down in Miami-Dade um, are uh, how are those uh, Puerto Rican votes around or Orlando? How are they uh, voting? Are they uh, which direction are they voting? Because um, there's been some uh, uncertainty in the polls about that. So I, I'm unfortunately I'm going to hedge on this and say I don't know um, where I would look. Uh, I'm going to look at several uh, locations around the state and and see what happens. Um, and you know if you know if I saw Duval for example uh, won by Biden, I'm like yeah, well that's over because um, that's a, a heavy military area. So if if, if- if Biden, if I'm looking at Duval and I see that Biden wins Duval, I, I can be fairly confident he's going to win the state. That's the kind of trick I'm looking for. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a heavy military uh, um, vote, both for veterans and there's some military bases there. So it's a, it's why that, and but there's also a strong African-American community. So it's, it's got a lot of markers that, you know, might look, but, but it's a, it's a county that's generally, uh, won by the Republicans in the state. So that's why I'm saying if I see it go the other way, then it's over. Yeah. Michael, let me ask you, I'm, I'm con- when you say 99% of the vote is in election day, Democrats say, yeah, but let's not forget who's the governor of the state. The closest ally probably Trump has in a state house. And their nightmare scenario, nightmare, excuse me, is that, hey, Governor DeSantis at eight o'clock says, look, we have evidence of a lot of fraud. There's 52 percent of the votes by mail. We're going to impound that. We're going to stop things. It's not unusual for Florida election officials to muck up an election. Well, um, you know, that's a threat everywhere. I mean, um, uh, there is that scenario. But, I, you know, I, I hate to go down these rabbit holes into conspiracy theories because I. Um, so you don't think it has any any real practical feasibility? I, it's, it seems to me it'd be a very unlikely scenario because um, uh, Trump himself has, has blessed mail balloting in Florida. Um, and so he, he said it's, you know, it's fraudulent everywhere else, but Florida knows what they're doing uh, because it's a Republican government. And, uh, and so he said that publicly. Um, and I, I, so I, 
I, I kind of doubt that that sort of scenario would unfold. But the other part of this is that elections are run at the county and local level across the country. So it would be difficult for DeSantis to come in and make a blanket declaration and, and halt everything. Um, it, uh, you'd have to go county by county and you'd have to get, uh, um, uh, you know, courts involved and all of that. And so I, that, that scenario couldn't happen, I don't think. Um, but what could happen, and the one that I worry more about um, in that sort of, again, this, this low, very low probability event, but the way in which um, Biden could win the Electoral College but actually lose the election is if, uh, say, the Wisconsin Republican who, who are much more <laughs> uh, militant than the Florida Republicans, if they come in and declare that their state ha uh, uh, annuls their state elections and just directly elect their electors. And that's something they can do in their constitution, in the U.S. Constitution. State legislatures can appoint the electors if they want to. Well, the Congress can reject that. But let me ask this. We talked about Governor DeSantis. Uh, no governor is closer to Trump. No governor has more screwed up the COVID-19 response. I think that is just clear cut. Florida now has the about the highest rate of infections per capita, much higher than New York or California. Does it matter? Is his popularity plummeting? I saw one poll that suggested it was not. Is he a liability for Trump down there or a plus? All right. So you're re referencing that NBC poll that came out uh, um, just recently. And, I, you know, look, the polls are going to come and go. The other polling that we've seen out of Florida suggests that he's not that popular, that he took a, a hit on his popularity um, because of what's happened with COVID. Um, so I, I'm a little distrustful of, of any single poll. I'm looking at the overall trends on the polls. Uh, you, know, you know, just afterwards, we had this huge poll um, uh, nationally by Reuters, which shows, uh, you know, tw plus 12 advantage for Biden among likely voters. That that poll can exist in the same universe and be right as the NBC poll showing Florida uh, even. Um, one of the two of them are wrong, and most likely both of them are wrong because there's random sampling error that goes with polling, among many other things in the secret sauce of how polls are made. And um, I, so they're they're probably both outliers, and we should just you know take the averages. Yeah, I. I I should not have focused on Paul's. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to focus on DeSantis. What is what is DeSantis? Does DeSantis matter in the presidential election down there? That's a really good question. I and we would have to look at polls to know the answer to it. But hat, is the COVID response by governors affecting voters' perceptions of the presidential election? Um, it's possible. I, I and you, I mean, there's some evidence of it if you look at you know, some of the states that are in play that like Arizona has had a terrible outbreak as well. Um, and Texas, those states are in play. So um, it could be, it could be that there's some uh, trickle up that's happening from the governors to the presidential election. So I, I'm just not bought into this, we're not going to know election night theory. All right, I'm just not into it. I think the, the range we would say would be a narrow Trump electoral college victory, all right? Or you could have a, a 1980-type Biden victory. The, 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 the range of that is about where it could, could end up. We're going to know North Carolina and Florida probably before midnight. And there's no way if Biden carries either one of those two states that he's going to lose. It just can't happen. And 
I, I just think there's look if, if if he loses North Carolina and Florida closely, then you then you got to get nervous. But if he carries either one, stick a fork in it. It's done. I'm with you 100% on this. I mean, I I I understand why we want to prepare people for the doomsday scenario where we don't know Michigan and Michigan is pivotal, or uh, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. All three of those states, the state governments, the Republicans have uh, withheld the ability for uh, election officials to count those mail ballots and prep them uh, for counting before election day. So they're going to be behind in those states, and we know that. Um, but if Biden wins Florida, it's game over. If Trump wins Florida by a large amount, then it's game over too, because we know that there's probably been a national swing to Trump. Um, that seems unlikely given the polling, but we have to put that in the range of possibility. It's only in this doomsday scenario where Florida is like in a recount situation and you know we're waiting for the other states to do their reporting, it's gonna be a little late, that we don't know who the president is. That seems like the least probability probability of things that could happen on election night. Well, I think you are, I, I think you are ignoring the fact that North Carolina and Florida might be a very close race. And that Edison group that you're working with, Michael, and the AP, I know, are going to be extremely cautious on election night, having been burned in the past. So let's say Biden is winning North Carolina and Florida, it looks like by two points. No one's going to call that. That's going to still be up in the air. And it may well be ultimately will make no difference. But the idea that midnight will be able to say, okay, we're certainly that's where it is. If Biden wins them by four or five, or if Trump wins them by five or 10, you're right. But if it's narrower, I think that's a much harder call given the, the caution that's going to take place. Not, not at all. Because um, if Biden is up by even like a percentage point in Florida, we know that that outstanding vote tends to break towards the Democrats. And so um, most likely then, I mean, and we would get confirmation from other states as well. It wouldn't just be those two states. We could look at other patterns that we're seeing in Colorado that's going to be a fast reporting state. And in Texas, you know, they didn't actually do mail balloting, right? They didn't expand mail balloting. So we're going to get Texas numbers in pretty quickly, too. Um, we're going to get a sense of the overall swing nationally. And if Biden's up by just a little bit in, the, in Florida, um, we have very strong expectations that those additional votes are going to come in for Biden. They're not going to break towards Trump. And 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 Edison's going to say that in election night. If it's by 1%, yeah, I think so. Um, that will be outside the margin of a recount. Um, uh, if it was the other way around, we might be really looking closely where if Trump's up by a percentage point, then we'd be saying, all right, is this enough? Is there enough outstanding vote to shift this over into a recount situation? If it is, then we won't call it. But if it's not, then like if Trump's up by two percentage points, it's probably a call for Trump on election night too. Right. Who gives a shit when the AP calls it? If, if, if Biden wins Florida, he's going to win. I mean, it's just, there's not any doubt about it. And if he wins North Carolina, he's going to win. And they can call it whenever they want to, but that's just a fact. I mean, and you're right, we're going to have all of this information. Now, if the race is truly close, if it's a 2016 scenario, then we're going to, we're going to be in December fighting this stuff. But th that's a very, that's a pretty narrow chance. I admit that it exists, but I don't think that's likely. And if, tr if Trump wins Florida by two, he's going to win the Electoral College. I mean, it just is. Yeah, and the amount, of, the amount of ink that's being spilt on this scenario is is way out of proportion for what might actually happen. 
And I, what I get concerned about is that it becomes a self-fulfilling pro prophecy then because people say, oh, it must be narrowing. It must be very close because um, uh, it could be close. And then, uh, uh, you know, and people say, well, maybe I, yeah, you know, maybe Trump is doing a lot better than I thought he, uh, he should be. And, and maybe I'll vote for him. And, you know, so I, I, I get concerned that we focus so much on the, the narrowing of the election and we don't talk about the other possibility, which is, hey, it's going to be a blowout election for Biden. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what every, all the polling tells us. <laughs> okay, uh, James, you got a final question for Michael, the full professor? Yeah, I, one of the things that there's 700 lawyers in the Houston area that have volunteered to help with ballot security and election stuff. They're probably 2,500 lawyers in Florida that are on standby, and if somebody it, it may be the Wisconsin legislature would would force the electorate to, to vote for Trump. If you think there was some crap going on in Kenosha, you have no idea of what Milwaukee or Madison or any other place would look like if the Wisconsin legislature just decided against the will of the people of Wisconsin to, to instruct their electors. I mean, I, I know this stuff is possible, but I, for one, think we're like dreaming up stuff that can happen that is highly unlikely to happen. Yeah. And where are the think pieces that are saying this is going to be a blowout election? And what are the consequences of that? Because it's really important to the things that you're just talking about, uh, James. Um, if this is a, a huge win for the Democrats, it means that they have a good chance of taking over, say, the Texas House of Representatives. Um, and that's really important. That puts a break on the gerrymandering that would happen for the next decade in Texas and could give the Democrats a real chance to take control of the entire state legislature in Texas over the next year. And then that makes, you know, then the laws start changing in Texas and um, and it makes it easier for people to vote. And then Texas, uh, you know, it becomes battleground and maybe it even moves a little bit more blue. And that changes the electoral college strategy entirely. And that's not the only place where these sort of important things are happening in state elections. So we don't really talk much about like, what, what does it mean for the, the Democrats having a control of the Senate? What, what does it mean for the Democrats to have control of some of these key state houses around the country? It means a lot for the next decade. Well, I would argue in line with what you just said, the second most important election of the decade, uh, the decade we've just lived through was the 2010 election after, the, you know, which enabled Republicans to control redistricting and other things after the census. And that's why a lot of these problems and laws exist today. And if Democrats, they need a big win because they need to pick up that Texas uh, 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 Senate. They need to pick up the North Carolina House. They need to pick up a seat, you know, one in Georgia. I guess they got some shot in Florida. Boy, you're right. That'll make a huge difference. And Republicans are pouring a fortune into those races right now. So I got breaking news. I just got the Washington Post has a headline. Woodward Book. Trump says he knew about corona. He knew coronavirus was deadly and worse than the flu while intentionally misleading Americans. Is, is there video? Because that's about the only thing that people are going to believe at this point. I, I, just, yeah. I, just, Ralph, I just got the headline. OK, I, 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 as soon as this is over, I'll pull up the Post website and read the story. Michael McDonald, you have been terrific. Congratulations on your promotion of full professor. Uh, and we're going to we have to talk to you sometime before November 3 just to see if any of this has been recalibrated. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'll be tracking this all along uh, on my website. Uh, so it's electproject.org. Um, and I'm also on Twitter under that handle as well, electproject. 
And, uh, you know, I, I'm tracking the 57 million people who have so far requested mail ballots in this country and doing it on a state by state basis. So um, if you want to follow all that, you're welcome to do so. We, we will do so. Consider it bookmark. <laughs> it's, it's done. Thank you, Michael. Be safe. All right. You too. Hey, James, you know, last weekend, the Texas Trumpers decided COVID-19 be damned. Let's have a big Trump vote rally on Lake Travis. That was a great idea, except five boats sank and the sheriff's rescue department had to be called in. The Trump triumph turned into the Trump Titanic. We have our expert on all things Texas, Billy Begala, who's working for the Democratic Senate candidate down there this year, the son of Paul Begala. And any debate, Billy, about who has the best political mind in your family is easy. It's your mother. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Tell us about the saga of Lake Travis. Right. So this all took place on Saturday. Um, And just to sort of paint the picture, Saturday was a perfect, beautiful, central Texas September day. It was blue skies, low winds, high of 90, just couldn't ask for anything better. And uh, all these Trump supporters decided to head out to Lake Travis, which is a, a lake about 20 minutes outside of Austin, and hold one of their boat rallies. Um, now, I will say no one got hurt, so I feel better poking some fun and, and talking about this. But, uh, you know, these folks set sail, and apparently uh, the big boats were not playing nicely with the little boats, and they weren't controlling their wakes and ended up swamping out a bunch of these little boats. So uh, around noon, the Travis County Sheriff's Office received 15 distress calls. They had to dispatch EMTs, firefighters, rescue divers, and once all the dust settles, five boats had sunk, three of them were towed away, and two of them are still residing at the bottom of Lake Travis today. So it's kind of the the perfect allegory for what the Republican Party has become. Um, I don't know if y'all know this, but recently uh, disgraced former Congressman Alan West was elected as the chairman of the Texas GOP. Florida man Alan West is now the chair of the Texas GOP. And he promptly, one of the first things he did was he changed the slogan of the Texas Republican Party to an allusion to QAnon. It's, uh, their new slogan is now, we are the storm. And remarkably, Alan was right. The Texas GOP managed to be the storm on a clear blue sky day that sunk five of their own boats. <laughs> hey, Billy, how much did it cost the taxpayers? Do we know? You know, that's that's tough to say. Um, I know that the the sheriff's office had to d- dispatch quite a bit of resources to go and, and help these folks. And, you know, thank God they did. And, and no one was seriously injured. But, um, you know, someone's going to have to go fish two boats out of the, the bottom of Lake Travis now. And, you know, that's going to be coming out of my pocket. So, so, you know, Admiral Nimitz was from Fredericksburg, so it has a great naval tradition in Central <laughs> Texas. And I think it's the battle of, of Lake Travis and the Battle of Midway. <laughs> but, but it's perfect, allegory because the big boats sunk the little boats, and that's the modern Republican Party. Give us up on a more serious note, because you're very political and very plugged in. Give us your analysis of where Texas stands right now going into November. I mean... It- it's it's neck and neck. It's a dogfight right now. Um, you know, poll after poll shows 
either Biden up one, Trump up one, them in a dead heat. And quite frankly, it, it doesn't really matter whether it's Trump plus one or Biden plus one right now. Um, but it, it is a dead heat. It is a dogfight. And this is uh, a battle that's being waged from the top of the ticket all the way down to the very bottom. Um, like Professor McDonald was saying, you know, we have a really good chance to take back the state house right now. We need nine uh, out of 151 state house seats to do so. Last cycle in 2018, we flipped 12 seats. So it's very much doable. You know, we have um, polling that's showing us ahead in a lot of these targeted districts. And one thing that I think is really important for folks to understand is we can take back the state house, even if, you know, Biden or uh, my boss, MJ Hagar, if they get us close. Beto, when he lost by a little less than three points, he actually won a majority of Texas state house districts. The Texas Republicans have gerrymandered themselves backwards into a corner. And so we have a really good chance to take back the state house, to have a lever of power going into redistricting. We have a chance to elect MJ Hagar, who is a decorated war hero, combat veteran, Purple Heart recipient, uh, just absolute badass war hero. And uh, we have a chance to kick out John Cornyn, who has time and again um, cozied himself up to Trump and McConnell and the big pharma lobby and, and corporate PACs and has really done a number on Texas's ability to respond to the coronavirus and to to help folks that are struggling get along right now. So it, it's it couldn't be higher stakes and things are looking really really good. And we're we're in in for a fight right now. You're also going to pick up two. You're going to pick up at least two congressional seats. I gather. Oh yeah, the the congressional map is really really competitive here in Texas. You know, this is sort of the Texas is the cornerstone of the D Triple C's offensive strategy here. Um, and we, we've got Gina Ortiz-Jones running down in South Texas for Will Hurd's empty seat. We have Wendy Davis running against Chip Roy in Texas 21. Um, we have Shri Kulkarni running. We have talented candidates up and down Texas. Um, and, and, you know, we could win between two and six congressional seats, depending on how this election goes. Well, I, I can see, not, not surprisingly, your pedigree is excellent. And I think you you listen very closely to your mother because your analysis is spot on, uh, Billy. <laughs> a, a, good, a good report on the, the Battle of Lake Travis and a good report on the state of play in Texas. I, I want to second everything James said, Billy. And I'll give you one bit of old man advice. Stay away from Lake Travis, okay? <laughs> Will do. Well, James, we had a really good show today, um, and I'm going to do something that's rare. I, you get a lot of credit, justifiably, for engineering the Clinton victory in 1992 and being a really important advisor to President Clinton for most of those years. But you really made a, a you and Paul Begala made a big mistake when that Paula Jones case came up, the one that ended up, you know, producing the only hearing Ken Starr tried to fake. Uh, you, instead of using outside attorneys and paying for them, you could have used the Justice Department. You could have had the Justice Department defending Bill Clinton uh, against the Paula Jones charges, because that's what Donald Trump is doing now with Bill Barr. Uh, and I, I'm sure Republicans would have accepted that back then, don't you think? Well, they could have, but David Kendall was such a good lawyer, the Paula Jones case was dismissed with prejudice. So, yeah, but it, it is. I'm just going to get that in. But, but. I don't even understand the theory upon which this rests. I'm sure they have one, 
But man, this is about as specious of use of government funds as you can imagine. I, to, to me, uh, we have a lot of good lawyers that are friends of ours, and I'm, I'm, I'd be curious to see what the what the theory of this case is because I don't see it. I really don't. No, I don't either. I I wrote our friend Walter Dillinger. I'll let you know when I hear back. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, any any final thoughts before we go? Well, I I, I want. One thought is, you know, we, 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 we have this ongoing thing, you and I, we, I claim not to follow polls day by day, but I actually, I do <laughs> somewhat. We just saw the example of NBC Marriage, which I, I think is probably, you know, honorable, honest, hardworking people. And, and they had Florida 4848, and the Democratic Party, as we know it, had, of course, had a collective meltdown because... Prior to that, all the polls in Florida showed Biden with a small to moderate lead. And then, of course, I opened up my computer this morning, and they have uh, and they have, there was a Susquehanna College poll that had Pennsylvania Trump plus two that caused angst. And you correctly pointed out it was the 15th and undecided. But the same NBC Marriott showed Biden up by nine in Pennsylvania. The thing that I think you and I can agree on to tell our listeners and subscribers is you can't be up nine in Pennsylvania and even in Florida. This is not a possibility. And, you know, we should heed our own advice and look at polling averages and give greater weight to telephone polls than we do to online polls. That That's my, my and I, I won't take my own advice because I'll freak out at every little thing I see, but I'm going to try not to. Well, I, I totally agree with you. And I have the same uh, problem you do. I look at them every day and I look at all of them. And if one shows it different than I thought it was going to be, my heart will sink for about two or three seconds and then you get over it. But you, you ought to look at averages uh, out there. And you also, there are some polls that are just have an historic record of being better. Uh, you know, the NBC Wall Street Journal at the top of that list, uh, uh, anything Ann Selzer does for Grinnell or any, any place else. Uh, and there's some polls, particularly some of the newer ones that are just done online that are more dicey and they're going to show these gyrations and uh, don't pay if you if you can. And I can't. If you can, don't pay any attention to them. Right. We don't follow our own advice. So I can't tell other people, too. But it just every time that you 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 and of course, it's just part of the way that people are. They look for a bad poll. You know, and that everybody, we allow ourselves to get freaked out. One other point before we leave, Tom Betzel had a piece in the New York Times, it's online, it's not on the hard copy of the paper, and just talks about the idea that you can improve the human condition by the application of smart policy. And it's a very well done piece, and just how far it's been, exposed structural racism, the pandemic has been terrible for people of color, as has the policing. But but we can't also deny that there's been real progress made in a lot of this over the last 25 or 30 years. And I think Tom did a good job of pointing that out. I'm a big Tom Edsel guy. It's a must read. He was on our first show, James. And, and one thing, I'll make a commitment now, we're going to have him back before November 3. There is no better and more thoughtful journalist in America than Thomas Hetzel of the New York Times. Right. And, and you know, both, you know, Michael Moore and Donald Trump want you to believe that, you know, that 
it's doomed and all you, you know, there's nothing else. And that's just not true. And you got to be careful not to fall in, to allow ourselves to lapse into that kind of doom and gloom. Right. Or that it doesn't matter uh, because it matters big time. Uh, well, all right. We, it was a good show. And I want to thank everybody out there for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Email us, politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show, hopefully with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another good guest as the countdown begins to November 3rd, uh, an election that will change the fate of the country and the world. Please vote early if you can and be safe.